Well, there's a book in my office by a man named Christopher Hitchens. It's titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. I should let you know up front that I strongly disagree with Mr. Hitchens on a few points. I happen to know for a fact that God is great. But I do understand some of the reasons why Hitchens writes what he writes in his book. I understand that there are a whole lot of things that can be poisoned by religion in this world. That what happens when human beings get their hands on what we call religion can be outright disastrous. Lies, manipulation, and fear, and guilt, and violence. I find it very interesting that the passage of Scripture we are coming to in the Bible this morning actually warns us against that very kind of what I'm going to call bad religion, what Christopher Hitchens would wrongly suppose genuine Christianity is. In fact, the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 4 not only warns us against that kind of abusive, guilty conscience-driven manipulation that masquerades as religion, it even provides us with the truth that protects us from it. I have two requests for you right out of the gate this morning. Um, the, the two things for your mind to be thinking about. The first one is a question. The question is this, guilt or gratitude? The so-called religious things that you do in your life, the things that you do because of what you believe about God and Jesus Christ, why do you do them? Is it out of guilt or fear? Or is it out of gratitude? That's the first question. The things that I do because of my faith, do I do them out of out of fear, out of guilt, or out of gratitude. And the second thing I want you to start doing is just start working on this little draft of a mental map of what, what your ordinary week looks like. What parts of your life are religious and what parts aren't? If you were to be honest and enlist the aid of the Spirit of God to help you to see the truth, what areas of your life are at least somewhat set apart, sanctified, holy, or belonging to God, and which parts are... Normal, for lack of a better term. What parts are you in charge of? Your thought patterns and your actions. And what parts of you look more like a normal person who doesn't call Jesus Lord? It's the only time every four years most of us are relatively familiar with uh, that electoral map that shows up during the U.S. election. Right? We've all got that emblazoned on our minds right now. So maybe it helps picture it that way. Picture the different parts of your life, different times of the week, different things that you do, Parts of your personality, this, this part over here is under my control, and this part over here, that's where it's more under the control of Jesus. Just don't use red and blue, it'll get really confusing. And I know I'm giving you work to do right at the beginning, but we all know it really only takes about half of your brain to listen to the things I'm saying up here anyway, so we're just giving the other half something productive to do that'll come in handy later on. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to use whatever part of your brain is left and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been working our way through the, the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his faithful son in the faith, writing to Timothy about what kind of things should um, makes for a healthy church, makes for a healthy household of God. And we're going to read now from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So this little warning passage comes immediately on the heels of chapter 3, where you might recall we find in some detail what the qualifications are to be a servant leader, and in the case of elders, to be a teaching leader in the church. And they're extensive qualifications, and they're almost exclusively character qualifications. Paul's very concerned in his letter to Timothy that the teaching of truth in the church is handled carefully, so as to protect the gospel, which has been entrusted to them from God, and that the truth would be lived out in that church. Now, some of the attention at the beginning of that chapter bounces back to consider the fact that there will be challenges here in the beginning of 1 Timothy 4. There, there are going to be challenges now from bad teachers. And that's why it's so important to have good teachers who handle the word of God rightly in the church. Because a lot of harm can be done when lies are taught as truth. No. We see right away in this passage, in verse 1, what some of the damaging effects of bad teaching can be. When we read that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. There are many proper responses for us to have when we see that sad reality of some people that we knew who seemed faithful and firm drift away from the truth, away from Jesus Christ and from his church. We should be saddened when we see that happen. We should be sobered by the warning to examine our own lives to make sure we're in the faith. We should pray for those people and reach out to them and try to win them back. But the one thing that we probably shouldn't be, and perhaps this is to help guard us against becoming discouraged, but we shouldn't be too surprised that it actually does happen. Because Paul writes that the Holy Spirit has specifically said that this very thing will happen in the church. We're told that some will fall away. And it's important to know that the word that's used of falling away, it can't possibly mean this. It can't possibly mean someone who is fighting and fighting to hold on to their faith, trying hard and just slipped and stumbled and got swept away. That's not what that word means. It means a choice has been made. It means a conscious departure. It means you took up your ball and you went home. It means that you chose to pick up from one place where you were and go somewhere else instead. It's the word that we get our term apostasy from. John MacArthur points out that an apostate is not someone who is struggling to believe, but one who willfully abandons the biblical faith that he had once professed. And it helps to follow up and look at what he gives as the spiritual explanation for apostasy. He says it's this, it refers to those who come very close to the truth that saves only to leave. These are the ones that the Apostle John writes of over in 1 John 2.19 when he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. The warning here is real, and we need to treat it seriously. It is possible to appear to be in the faith, to mentally agree with the truth that the church teaches, without ever really believing to the point of saving faith. And from that state, it's possible to fall away. In a sense, those ones we read of here in 1 Timothy have been victimized by some bad teaching. We're about to look at that, where that bad doctrine comes from, what characterizes it. But it's also important to look closely at verse 1 and see that they will fall away 
because they have devoted themselves to bad teaching. So at some point, they didn't just encounter this bad doctrine, but they chose to leave the truth and pursue a lie which cannot save. The next two groups of people that get mentioned at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, they need to be kept separate, and they also need to be talked about separately. So we have to discuss them together, but we have to distinguish between the two. These are the two sources of the bad doctrine that creeps in. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So two things about these bad doctrines. First is the real origin is spiritual and demonic. These are deceitful lies thought up by demons. And second is that we usually encounter these lies through the lying, insincere human beings who teach them. So there's, there's so much at stake when the truth of the gospel gets tampered with that we can't just assume it's merely bad human logic or twisted selfish motives or flat-out sin-bred, stupid, sin-bred stupidity in humanity, which is a factor too. But there's something more that gets involved when doctrine is being twisted. There's evil, spiritual tampering meant to deceive and tear down and kill. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's more at work here than we can see. A little while ago, I was at a bookstore, and I walked by the astrology section, not astronomy, but astrology, the astrology slash spiritual enlightenment section. And it's unbelievable the kinds of books you can find there. The Truth of Spirits, 365 Ways to Raise Your Frequency. The Key to Crystals, From Healing to Divination. The Power of Angel Medicine. Money and the Law of Attraction, Learning to Attract Wealth and Health and Happiness. And then there's a whole section of tarot cards. You know those cards that are supposed to be able to help you read into your future with the help of some combination of helpful spirits and the mojo of the universe? On that shelf in front of me, there were literally dozens, more than 20, special little themed and marketed different types of tarot decks. Now just one method, one method of indulging your gullibility in the faith of a crooked charlatan and or evil spirits who love you even less than that crook. Now, there's not just one type of tarot card. There's, there's t- kinds for every person. You get to choose your own. Uh, I have a list here. I'm not even going to bother reading them out loud. There's uh, like so many of them. There's the, the animal dreaming tarot deck card. There's the nature's whispers one. There's the vampire themed one. There's the zombie themed one. There's angel therapy and earth energy. There's even the easy tarot set that promises right on the back that beginners with no knowledge at all can learn to tell their own fortune easily. And everyone comes with a 120-page instruction booklet to teach you how to do just that. And if you have ever looked at those things or thought about those things and asked yourself the question, how can reasonably intelligent human beings who are capable of operating the motor vehicle required to get to that bookstore and of earning the money required to purchase those cards, how can anyone ever think that they get to choose between 30 different theme box sets to choose the one that just speaks to them, and that one is going to work to unlock the secrets of their existence. The answer might be scarier than you think. It might very well be that sinful, 
human darkness is not enough on its own to create that much of a market for, useful, for useless lies. Because there is one spirit of truth, one God, who has revealed to himself in his word and in his son, there's one spirit of God has warned us that many will fall away to deceitful spirits, which use human crooks to schlock the doctrines of demons, which will keep some from the truth. There is an agenda that goes beyond what we can see. There is an evil force that would love to see the church and anyone get sucked down by lies and kept from the truth. But that's not all, because Paul is not writing about bad teachers outside of the church. He's writing about bad teachers inside the church. And that, folks, is the truly depressing part about the trip to the bookstore to me. It's when I round the corner and I come over to the Christian living section and see books which, books which claim to speak for Jesus but bear a shocking resemblance to all the other self-help books in all the other sections of the bookstore. And there are a lot of good books in that section, too. A lot of good books that encourage me. But the books which proclaim the gospel and the books which only claim it and distort it, they don't receive a special sticker to let you know which one is which on the bookshelf. And it's important to know that some of the facts about these so-called teachers in the church that we read here in 1 Timothy is that they distort the truth and they teach lies. They're lying hypocrites. ESV calls them insincere. They don't believe the things that they're saying. And the odd time out there, I'm sure there is the case out there where there are some people who are trying to teach the truth and just making mistakes. But the scary thing is that most of the time these people have a goal that is entirely different from helping anyone. That's why those books are so carefully marketed to look just like the bestsellers in the diet section and just like the bestsellers in the career section and just like the bestsellers in the eliminate your poverty by the power of crystals section. Right? Paul tells us that these teachers don't even believe their own lies. They're just in it for their own good and that their consciences are seared. Sometimes we think of our consciences being seared. We might think of them being, say, like hot, like it's in pain. My conscience might be burning me on the inside when I'm thinking about doing something that I know is wrong. But that's probably not the meaning of the word seer in the text here. The word suggests the idea of being branded or being cauterized. So when a conscience is working properly, it's supposed to burn and causes us pain when we're singing. That's what a conscience is supposed to do. Be thankful when your conscience does that. But these teachers don't have that. Instead of a healthy conscience, they have a lump of scar tissue They just have a damaged scar that can't feel anything anymore. The damage done has prevented them from feeling what other people might feel when they're doing wrong. There's a message here. Be careful of sinning against your conscience. It might get damaged. So that covers, so far, that first section on those who fall away and those who cause them to fall away. Lies are carefully introduced from demons and spirits. The truth gets twisted. That content comes to us through the mouths of human teachers, bad human teachers, who have no conscience, and that causes some people to fall away. And what we get to see, what we get to see next in verse 3, we have to get, get a peek into the content of this particular kind of bad teaching. And what we find is maybe not what we would expect. Verse 3, these teachers forbid marriage... And require abstinence from foods that God created, 
to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there it is. The deadly doctrine of lies, concocted by demons and spouted by dangerous false teachers with dead consciences. Don't get married and don't eat certain foods. Is it just me or was anyone else expecting something a little more sinister after all the warnings and all the worry? We might have expected a full frontal assault on the doctrine of Trinity or the divinity of Christ or the freedom of salvation through grace. And truth be told, this teaching actually opens the door to all those things, but it's a back door. On the surface, it doesn't seem like a doctrinal emergency to just warn against marriage and certain foods. Subtle, dangerous teaching rarely sets off the alarm bells right at the beginning. But what's expressed by those ideas, that it's somehow more spiritual to deny certain things which God created for us. Sex and marriage, or food, or comfort, or sleep. What that amounts to is something that's properly labeled asceticism. It's the belief that our salvation can somehow be completed or added to through the denial of certain things or through the completion of certain tasks. Asceticism is part of a... It's usually a partner with some other thinking tendencies that appear in Gnosticism or dualism. and it, It's that thinking that says that deep down, there's something unspiritual about physical stuff. There's something unspiritual and dirty about this world and about my physical body. And our spiritual salvation is going to involve us being less and less in this world and more and more in the spirit and free from our bodies. And it leads us, if we go all the way down that path, to stop caring about what we do with our bodies at all, to stop caring about other people who have needs. Part of what makes it so dangerous is that it contains a little shred of truth, right? Celibacy and singleness and fasting, those are good things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with those things. But asceticism goes too far and it teaches that they're necessary. It teaches that they're required. It adds them as a requirement for salvation. That it's spiritually necessary to deny some of the good things that God has created. And what happens when those liars and false prophets teach this is that everyone claims to know just exactly what those things are you need to deny or those things you need to do in order to be saved. And it turns out that it always turns out to be something more or something different than what God has ordained for salvation, which is faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Those liars and hypocrites with their cauterized and senseless consciences, they take advantage of the healthy consciences of everyone else out there. They, they pile commands on these people, and they, commands pile, and they pile up and up, and eventually they produce in the person who hears them a sense of guilt where there is actually nothing wrong in their life. And Kent Hughes puts it this way. The creation of, a, of an ascetic conscience that you can soothe by a fleshly abstention can anesthetize you to the inner demands of the Spirit. Jews, that instead of being sensitive to the Spirit of God and being sensitive to what God would have you do in your life, you forget to obey God because you're too worried about obeying these other fleshly commands that you've got. You're slavishly working to soothe your guilty conscience, doing things God never asked you to do, or abstaining from things God never asked you to abstain from. And here's how Hughes finishes his thought. He says, The trick ends up being to hide your inner wickedness by outward observance. 
That's how this thing really works. That's how this thing gets dangerous, is it teaches you to hide the inner wickedness and not deal with it, and instead soothe your conscience by just doing those tasks that God never asked you to do. If I sin in one area, what I should do is come to Christ and confess it. Repent of it. Forsake it. And then thank Him for His forgiveness. But this teaching that I can make myself right through my own denials puts something entirely different in that place. It's an entirely different system of God's salvation by grace. It suggests that I made right with God when I deny a certain thing or work extra hard over here instead. Here's how one commentator describes the misery of letting this kind of thinking creep into our life. He says it narrows life, it empties the fountains of joy, it destroys the hopes of youth, it degrades the body, and treats matter as though it were evil. So I have a question for you. Who signs up for that? Really, who signs up for that system where we have to deny the good things that God has given us? The frightful thing is that many of us, on one level, at certain points in our spiritual lives, might struggle with these kind of tendencies and might need to be washed clean of them through the truth of the word. But who is really at risk of devoting themselves to these things, devoting themselves to them and falling away from the true faith? And the answer is someone with a guilty conscience. Someone who is not resting on a firm faith in God's gracious salvation, which has been bought and paid for on the, Christ, on, on the cross where Jesus died. If someone's faith is not there, if a man or a woman is not looking to Jesus to save them, then he or she will always feel that burden or that worry that he isn't good enough or that she hasn't done enough. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. Because only the blood of Jesus assures us that our sins have been covered and we have been made right with God. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that everyone who believes in him could be born again from dead into everlasting life, could become a brand new creation, walking in the life and the power of the Spirit. Jesus died so that we might die to sin and live to him. Not that we would hate our bodies, but so that we would use them, use all of us, to live him, to live for him. Jesus made a life of self-restraint and freedom from sin possible. He asked us to walk with him in holiness, enjoying every good thing that God has given us, and not to chain ourselves all over again to a new set of artificial rules. There's a quote from Brian Chapel at the top of your outlines there. It says, God is never properly worshipped by a denial of his gifts. I would add to that and say neither is he pleased with our attempts to purchase his gifts from him. I was at the Remembrance Day service at the drill hall on Friday. If you were there, you know that there were many at the front who spoke as part of that panel, and most of them, not all, but most of them recited some kind of poem about a poppy. I'm going to read one more for you now, if you don't mind. The old man was gray and bent in a straightish sort of way, He had a pride which pain and age could not strip away. He held the box of red and black and did not say a word. Two poppies pinned upon his vest spoke all that need be heard. A busy man came running by, saw the box, and stopped. Thank you, he said, and gave a coin, and departed at a walk. I want to buy a poppy, a voice rang high and clear. The old man had to stoop to see because the source had come so near. A ruddy, bright-eyed boy was there, tugging at his sleeve. 
I'd like to wear a poppy, sir. Can you tell me how much, please? The old man started. Then he thought. Then he frowned to hide a smile. These poppies aren't to buy, he said. The price would be too high. The boy's shoulders sagged, and his eyes teared up. He stood there at a loss. I just want to wear a poppy, no matter what it costs. I've heard about the things you did and others like you too. I want to give to wear the red. I want to say thank you. With that, the old man nodded, bent down at the knee. He pinned a poppy on the boy and said, Now I think you see. This box holds only gifts, the money and the flowers. Some gifts are yours. Some of them are ours. The cost was life and death, sacrifice and war. You cannot buy a poppy, son, because they've been paid for. It would be a ridiculous thing to think that the sacrifices made in our country's wars by Canadian soldiers could be assigned a price tag and properly paid off. It would be an insult to those sacrifices, and it would confuse the idea of guilt or debt with gratitude. Yet often in our hearts we do the same things with the gifts that God gives. As hard as we try to keep the teaching in our church free from anything that might distort the gospel in any way, it's almost unthinkable that most of you will go through your weekly and daily and monthly lives and never come in contact with something that tempts you to start earning your way into God's good grace. Which is why it's such a good thing that this passage before us this morning doesn't just warn us about what's false. It also builds us up in what is true. It gives us an attitude that we can adopt in the many situations that we face in our lives that allows us to build up our faith. The truth that exposes and destroys the lie of asceticism is this. It's the knowledge of God's goodness and the practice of receiving with gratitude everything he has created, all that he's done for us, and all the good and perfect gifts that he lavishes upon us. There's a story of a man who was being given a tour of Satan's property. And at the conclusion of the tour, he was invited into a greenhouse inside which grew all the seeds of temptation and sin and doubt which Satan had available to him. Proudly, Satan pointed out one particular type of seed, the seed of discouragement, which had more varieties than any other and which could successfully grow in almost any soil. With a note of sadness, though, Satan admitted that there was one and only one type of soil in which the seed of discouragement would not grow. They cannot grow inside a thankful heart. And thanksgiving for God's gifts is what is recommended for us in verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read the end of verse 3 and then 4 and 5 with us. These foods and good gifts that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The first truth that needs to be remembered to keep us from denying the good gifts we have from God is the doctrine of creation. God is good. And what God created is good. Over and over, Genesis 1, throughout the creation account, and it was good, and it was good, and at the end, it was very good. If we're not careful, and we flirt with bad teaching about denying the body, we can end up poisoning our attitudes towards just how good God's creation is. Yes, yeah, sin has wreaked havoc with the world that we live in. 
But Jesus came to redeem it all. It's no mistake that Paul slams this kind of, this kind of doctrine immediately after that old hymn he quoted at the end of chapter 3. Remember at the end of chapter 3, the mystery of godliness, which begins with the words, He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh. I can't think of any, way, any greater way to prove that God has good intentions for the physical world that he has created than this. Jesus Christ, the creator, stepped into creation and himself took on flesh. Because Jesus came in a human body to live a sinless life and to redeem us, that means that the life Jesus frees us to live now can be and should be lived out in our bodies, in our lives, in our jobs, in our homes when we're a little smelly or tired or sore. I think that the potential for spiritual growth that we have available to us in just thanking God for all the stuff we get to experience is huge. One commentator on this passage but had a really helpful thought to me. He said, It's a very important consideration that by our creature comforts in life, God is seeking to make us glad. God wants to make us glad and to attach us to himself in thankfulness. To attach us to himself in thankfulness. The purpose of the good things in this life, all those infinite pleasures out there that aren't tainted by sin, everything pure and good and enjoyable, the purpose of those things is A, for our enjoyment, and B, to attach us to God in thankfulness. That's not the guilty conscience religion that says, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. This is saying that unless you receive the good things with thankfulness and knowledge of the one who gave it to you, if you try to just enjoy what this world has to offer without ever remembering to be thankful for it, you're missing out on the very thing that all that good stuff was made for, to attach us to God in thankfulness. When we set God off to the side for a little break in our religious lives, How do we usually say it? I just want to veg tonight. I just want to relax. When you try and enjoy good things and relax without thanking him for them, it's as as if they could be enjoyed apart from God at all, as if he didn't make them and he didn't make them enjoyable. Like he didn't make lying down on a couch feel good. That that's that's a gift from him. We end up cutting ourselves off from what that pleasure was designed for in the first place. We'd be like a poor boy going to the movie theater for the first time. And he walks in there, he could just barely afford the ticket, he's so excited, and then that wall of popcorn smell just washes over him. And right away he has this huge craving and he's drawn to it. He goes over and checks out the the concession stand, takes one look at those prices and realizes, oh, I'm never going to be able to afford that. And then a stranger notices him purchases him a bag of fresh popcorn with extra butter, hands it to him as a gift. It would be as if that boy said, oh, now I have the bag of my very own to smell all I want. But if you're in trying to enjoy God's gifts without bothering to thank him for them, without being drawn closer to the God who gave them, you're doing it wrong. It's as simple as that. You're doing the fun in life wrong. You're leaving out the best part of the pleasure. The best part of the goodness, which is getting to know him more. Look with me at the end of verse 3. God created all these good things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The reason marriage and food and every other good thing was created was for it to be received. 
The reason a parent buys and wraps up a gift and gives it to their child is so that they can open it, right? But it's not just that. It's to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The reason why there's so much good stuff in this world, all of it was created to be received. It was created for you, for me, for all of us, to be received and to be received with thanksgiving in the truth. And that is an extra step that those who don't know God can never experience. They can never experience that extra step, that reason the good stuff was made, to end up knowing their creator more, to be thankful and to be drawn closer to the one who gave the gift. The main truth I want to leave you with this, this morning is that the cure for bad teaching that would trick you into soothing your conscience in any way other than the gospel of grace that we hear through Jesus Christ is to think on God's goodness and to receive his gifts with gratitude. That will protect you from so many of the evil one's attacks, especially in this kind of fleshy area. And more than that, it will help you grow in your relationship with the one who made you, the one that you were made to worship and enjoy. There's one other thought that I want to leave you with by way of potential application. That's when we, when we read at the end of verse 5 that these things are made holy by the word of God and prayer. What's that referring to? Primarily food. I think. I think we, we, we think correctly if we jump if our mind jumps to more or less giving thanks before we eat a meal, saying grace. But think about how incredible that is for a second. That food would be something that is consecrated. That food would be something that can be sanctified or set apart for God or made holy. Think about how many things the word holiness applies to in the Bible. It applies to God first and foremost. To be made holy is the chief goal of everything God has created. There is no higher destiny than to be made holy. Most importantly for you and I. To relate rightly to God. That's the point of being made by God. And the thing that, that we learn can be made holy here, through the word of God and through prayer, is the same thing that my four-year-old son is so keenly aware goes in one end and comes out the other. It's food. And food can be made holy. Meat and bread and vegetables and drink, when received properly, is something that's made holy. If that's the case, what thing is there in your life that cannot be made holy? What is there in your life that can't be lined up with the Word of God and being, be thanked for in prayer and can't be turned into holy ground? I would say there's nothing. What is there that God has put in your life that is not an opportunity to grow closer to Him? And think of your week coming up. Think of that map of your life that you started thinking about earlier, that what's secular and what's sacred. Write down now, if you want, on your page there, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What is there in your life that can't possibly be brought in line with the Word of God and given thanks for in prayer? What is there that can't be holy ground today or tomorrow or next month in your life? And thinking that way, you're going to run into some areas where not only God is God neglected, but sin has been enshrined in your hearts. If you come across something that you have to hide from God, that you can't, with a straight face, ask for blessing from God's word, that you can't pray, O oh Lord and Savior, thank you for this thing, then the problem is obvious and repentance is in order. There'll be some of those areas, some of those things to be dealt with. But I suspect there'll be a sizable portion of our lives that we will find where there's a whole lot to give thanks for, but that we hardly ever do. Then I challenge you today to examine just how much room there is for thanksgiving in your life. 
How much more potential is there for me to be more and more closely drawn to God through the simple act of acknowledging that this thing too came from Him? I've already been enjoying it. I should be thanking Him for it. There's a legend that tells of a visit being arranged by St. Francis of Assisi and two of his brothers. They agreed to meet in a remote monastery in the Umbrian Mountains of central Italy. After arriving and enjoying their reunion, every one of them began to report what he had experienced on the road. One Franciscan brother who had traveled on muleback said, God protected me in a miraculous way on my journey here. I was crossing over a narrow bridge that went over a deep mountain gorge and my mule jumped. I fell and I only narrowly escaped falling over the wall of the bridge to the gorge. God, by his love, has saved my life this day. A second brother spoke up and said, I had to cross a river and I slipped and fell. The waters carried me down the river, but God in his grace provided a tree that had fallen across the river and I was able to grab onto a branch and pull myself out. Thanks be to God for his miraculous mercy. And then St. Francis spoke. Let us thank God for his wonderful works. I myself did experience the greatest miracle of all on my way. I had the smoothest, most pleasant, completely uneventful trip. We need to learn to give thanks not just in the big things, but in the small things too. Sometimes the big things prompt us more than the small things do. I would encourage you to start by letting this passage give you some fresh insight and passion on how to give thanks for your meals. If giving thanks in every area of your life is too big of a goal, and it certainly is to just walk out this door and do as much as that's what we would all like to do, then start small. Right now, at lunch, if I ever stop talking, start by giving thanks for that. But don't, don't stop there. I would encourage you to see giving thanks for your food as a foothold in your life. Start there, and let it, let it spread to other areas. Find new things to give thanks for. Cultivate a spirit of thanksgiving. Develop an eye for God's giveness and learn to give thanks for it. Especially when it comes to giving thanks for God's free gift of forgiveness through sins. Through forgiveness of sins through Jesus' sacrifice. It will guard you against those ways that you can be tempted to try and cheapen God's gifts. By trying to recreate them in your own strength. Or trying to to find them apart from him. I'm going to close in one more poem, and then the last poem for the day, I promise. And then uh, we're going to close this off in prayer. This was written by G.K. Chesterton on saying grace. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we think of the incredible gifts that you've given us, and my mind is drawn back to that passage in Romans that we read together earlier today. That it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. While we were your enemy, you died for us. That sets the standard for how much you love us. And Lord, we pray that you would open up our eyes, Holy Spirit, and show us the things that we have to be grateful for. 
Help us to be thankful when we get up and when we sit down and when we enjoy a meal and when we wake up in the morning. Father, help us to, to extend into every area of our life the standard of your word. And if we see that the things that you have brought into our life are, are created by you, then help us to give thanks for them. Help us to grow closer to you in every opportunity you've given us for thanksgiving. Father, I remember when you first opened up my eyes to the gospel and, and saved me. That, that night when Jesus Christ became my Lord and Savior, when you saved a sinner like me, and I remember all at once with a sense of horror, my eyes were opened up to realize all of the good you had done for me, all of the patience and forbearance you had shown me my whole ignorant life, and how utterly unthankful I had been every moment of it. And yet your patience is everlasting. And yet you die for us while we are sinners. And yet you finish the things that you've started in us. So I pray this morning that we would go from here with eyes that are open to see the good things that you've done. Father, I pray that you would, you would help any who are here right now struggling to, to make themselves right in your eyes by their own efforts. I pray that you would give them rest from that burden that you would open up their eyes to see the freedom, the free forgiveness offered in grace through Jesus' wounds on the cross. Lord, don't let us look anywhere else. Make us thankful for the cross and thankful for every good thing that you give us. And Father, I pray that you forgive us even for the sin of neglecting those opportunities to thank you that we would go from here today repentant of our, of our ignorance and eager to see all the ways that you've blessed us and to return thanks to you instead as is proper. So Father, we, we devote the rest of this day and this week to you. We pray that you help us to live it in the power and the strength and the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.